on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, and with me all the way across the pond is the gold standard in ghost hunting, Mr. Stephen Parsons. Good afternoon. How are you? It's afternoon there? Uh, no, it's evening here. It's evening here. Is it? It's not. Yeah, it's dark outside. Daylight saving time makes it dark. Well, three o'clock in the afternoon. And snowing and everything. Seriously? Hmm. Anyway. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, I think Mercury blotted out the sun. That's what it was. Uh, it's been transiting again, has it? Yeah. Have you seen that, by the way? Any footage of Mercury going across the sun? Uh, I uh, Not this time. Uh, I remember m- myself and Anne Winsper went up to... Uh, one of the observatory in Cheshire many years ago to actually watch it real time. Very good. I thought it only happens at once every 40 years. Oh, maybe it was a Venus transit then. Yeah, maybe it was. Hmm. Unless you're older than I thought. Uh, well, if it's only every 40 years, then yep, I would have been around for the last one. With the M. Winsor? No. Hey, <laughs> t- did you see that um, Pluto's back to being a planet again? Oh, thank God. You know, yeah, I started NASA, to with that. Yeah, NASA re- reinstated it. Yeah, well, it's about time. That's all so, I can say. Uh, yeah, so does that mean we've now got ten? I have no clue. I think we've got ten planets. Uh, ten planets now. Yeah, then twelve, thirteen, who knows? It's okay. planet X and... Uh, yeah, there we are. I just, but I you're just, into yeah. all the, hey, did you see the link I sent you for the sea fourth? You can be a citizen of Sealand. That's nice. I, I, you can buy a lordship to go with your other one. Oh, that's pretty good. Well, I sent you the link a few days ago after the last show where we did about the coastal sea forts in Britain. I, and we spoke about the one where uh, it's right. uh, a principality. And mm-hmm. can, uh, so I eventually found the link. And they're promoting that you can buy a lordship of the principality of Sealand. That's pretty good. Which, I, I know you collect lordships, so... Uh, yeah, I do, I do, I so do. I Can't have I, enough of them, you know. Thought it might have been of interest. Mm. Anyway, uh, anything new and exciting that we should know about? Uh, no! I got sent a load of pictures today, um, pictures today of a semi-naked psychic. That's funny you mentioned that, because that's one of the <laughs> topics I wanted to bring up. Hmm, semi-naked psychics? Really? Yeah, no, genuinely. Uh, usually, usually I get just semi-naked pictures or naked pictures. I don't get one of psychics. Maybe this is a new trend. I don't know. There we are, you see. There we are. Hmm. Are they doing anything special, or is it just... 
there's, a, there's an anomaly on the photograph um, oh, that I've, I've been asked to look at. Ah, good, 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 good. So, anyway. Uh, I, of course, Apart I from that, there's an SPR council meeting uh, Thursday, Friday. Oh, good. So I posted on my my page the uh, the woman who was possessed at the airport. So uh, that's with the demon captured on thermal imaging. Uh, did TSA permit that sort of thing? Yes, yes. So you were allowed to take a demon through that. Evidently, either that or escape. I don't know one or the other. <laughs> but it happens, I guess. There <coughs> are. Anyways, um, interesting. The show, of course, is brought to you by uh, Circles of Wisdom, 386 uh, Merrimack Street in Methuen, Massachusetts, and the Gallant Messier Family Law Group on 4 High Street in Suite 155, not the end over Massachusetts. Strong, compassionate, and focused. Sort of like this show, you know? Well, I'm glad you've remembered the redress for a first. That's a first. And we've got a great news. We are actually, despite the the rumors going around that the curious uh, teller of tales had died, I guess he's making an appearance today. He is. Uh, we have a. I was warned actually when when I got sent the file. Um, it's a long one. He's been a very busy teller of curious tales to make up for his. Uh, Disappearance, I guess. It's a long one. We could get Derek and Cover to say that. Uh, it's a bad name. Mm. Yeah, anyway, about, uh, we should get Derek to do a promo for us. Yeah, well, I don't think he's speaking to me at the moment. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> what you do now? What what other paranormal person have you pissed off? Um. Yeah. Well, actually, funnily enough, um, this the, only this week. Uh, we had a new paranormal group form in, in West Wales, mm. uh, and uh, well, I that's reached different. Out. Yeah, well, you see, uh, we haven't had one for a while, so uh, I reached out to them and said, "Hey, uh, fancy doing the West Wales? Um, come on the show, tell tell the world, all, tell West Wales all about yourselves." And they said, "Yes, please." Then, so a date was all arranged, and then uh, another paranormal investigation group messaged them, and then they started fighting between themselves. Um, now, I, I was just a passive observer in all of this, until the second paranormal group tagged me, um, uh, and tried to drag me, and I didn't respond, but the fact that, but the fact that uh, I had been linked to this, uh, for this paranormal group who went on, to, went on the rampage, was sufficient to get us all blocked and barred by the first paranormal group. Uh, paranormal so I, unity. So I, sent, so I well, I sent them a message saying, hey, you've inadvertently blocked me. How do I communicate with you about coming on the show? Oh, we don't want to do the show now. Mm. So, so just stop it, huh? Basically, yeah. Um, so I inadvertently got dragged into somebody else's war. It's a great yep. thing, social media, isn't it? It you is, do absolutely is. nothing. You reach out, you say, hey, you know, come and tell us all about yourselves. Uh, showcase yourself. And uh, then they start fighting amongst themselves. And then we all get blocked and deleted simply for being on the other person's uh, contact list. Mm-hmm. That was my only crime. Well, 
I'm sure you would have committed something sooner or later, so... Uh, do you know, actually, with all of the local paranormal groups, um, I've always thought that um, it's not my place to. Uh, the, the, the West Files isn't for uh, me to have to, to spout off. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't got Ghost Chronicles for that. Um, Amen. <laughs> but rather, you know, they formed, they've got, they formed a group, um, and I, you know, give, give the groups, uh, there's two or three groups down here, and I've given equal opportunities to all of them just to come on, and uh, they've, got, they've got the radio airwaves to deal with, uh, you know, to promote themselves, to tell the local community about themselves, what they do, how they do it. Uh, it's not judgmental. I'm not out to get them or anything like that. But uh, yeah, there we are. Amazing. Yeah. Just take me. So I had a. I've been doing some pondering as I often do. I'm sure yeah. that's why Mercury went across the sun because you know it happens that's, that way. Yeah, that'll do. Um, and I started thinking about mediums. And they've been mediums through the centuries now, and they've used different methods of communications. And one of them we don't hear too much about is the uh, megaphone. And, spirit uh, trumpet. Yeah, spirit trumpet and the megaphone. It was really oh, we do. It's still quite popular. You can, still buy them on the, I, you can buy them on eBay. No, you, you don't hear really anything. I never hear anything about them. Nobody uses them in any investigations. Nobody uses them in seance. To Certainly not in the investigations, but they are still used in some seances here in the UK. Um, and they are still they are still available to buy. Nice handmade aluminium ones. Uh, or I think the originals were either aluminium or celluloid. Those are you can get. Uh, choice of both, but the modern ones are aluminium, uh, made to order, and they're quite pricey too. They're they're not used commonly. You're absolutely right. They've very much fallen out of favour, but they haven't quite disappeared. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of an early electronic uh, form, non-electronic form of, you call it VP, wouldn't you? Voice phenomena, mm-hmm. uh, because the spirit was supposedly able to project its voice via the use of this spirit trumpet, which was, in effect, just a cone of aluminium or celluloid um, through which the spirit would speak. The other thing as well is the spirit trumpets tended to also have bands of uh, luminous paint uh, around them because the trumpet would also... Yeah. Float around the room along with other. The other, the other thing that was very, very popular that you don't hear anything uh, about in seances um, at all are the use of musical instruments. Right. The likes of. Uh, uh, I guess the first, that's the first spirit trumpets were uh, homemade, and they were either made out of metal or cardboard. Yeah. And there is a narrow cone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was very popular in the late Victorian. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the late 19th through the Edwardian era, and then after, then again after World War One, um, that uh, a lot of these mediums would produce physical phenomena in the form of musical instruments being played, bells being rung, uh, voices emanating from floating trumpets, and uh, diaphanous hands and other body parts. I mean, the other thing that we don't get, of course, nowadays is ectoplasm. Uh, yeah. 
I'm trying to think about that. Uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I suppose there might be the odd one still out there, but I can't help feeling kind of uh, pleased about that because uh, having having seen a sample or two of ectoplasm, it's mm-hmm. it's not something I'd want to be handling on a day to day basis in seances. It, you know what's interesting, and you bring that well, up without rubber it, gloves anyway. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I had you know. One experience in in my investigator it happened early, very early in my my years, and I've never been able to explain it. And there, are, I found other instances regarding it, but um, it it's a black, thick, oozy gook uh, that materializes. And of course, that happened to me at uh, uh, O'Hill Burial Ground in Newburyport. Uh, out of nowhere, which was interesting, but there have been many other cases, including the Coast Guard Station, which Hollow House in, uh, uh, where is that? I forget, it's in Newbury, or I forget, uh, but also even in uh, a, a convenience store out in the Midwest, and uh, I have no clue what this material is or how it is associated with, if it is associated with spirits at all, but uh, it's certainly a a uh, phenomenon that uh, I haven't been able to explain. So, well, no. Uh, it's interesting that you mention it. I mean, is it if you hadn't gone beyond the burial grounds, mm-hmm. um, then when a corpse decomposes, you can get this black tarry exudate. Yeah, yeah. Totally understand um, that, but it, why would well, it appear uh, exactly. in midair yeah. on me? If it, yeah. if it had just been the burial grounds, then perhaps right. we'd have been onto something there. But no, um, it doesn't tend to appear in, in in stores and floating around the Coast Guard station and places like that. Yeah. Um, but when bodies do decompose, they do in some circumstances. Right. They black, can produce gook. black, yeah. oozy, nasty, mm. charry stuff. Mm. Um. <clears throat> So, so anyway, I'll put that out there if anybody else knows of any yeah. other experiences. Of course, the Tia Flat. Or if you, or if, or if indeed any of our listeners or podcast listeners are uh, able to manifest ectoplasm. Oh yeah, yeah, we're interested in ectoplasm too. Yeah, put it in the jam jar and uh, we'll send you. Send we'll your snots. Send your snots to us. <laughs> yeah, they send the snots to you. I'll just deal with the ectoplasm. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if it's hazard material if can make it through TSA. Yeah. yeah. Do we need hazmat suits? Yeah, probably. You need hazmat suits for everything nowadays. <laughs> hey, seriously. Um, I mean, it's got nothing to do with the paranormal, <laughs> but it is bizarre. Uh, we've, we've recently, our local uh, council have, our uh, local town council have recently changed our recycling and they've given us these blue plastic bags in which to put cardboard. Now, previously, if we had large pieces of cardboard, like a large uh, box that contained a household appliance, then you would load all of the other cardboard into the big box, and they would take it all away. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they won't do that anymore. It has to be uh, inside the blue bag. Hmm. We cut up ours and put it in. We, we, if you get a big piece, you know, like a big box, and you, you used to cut up all the other bits and put them in the big box. Oh, and ours, we would cut that big box up and put it in the bin. We have oh. uh, recycling bins that are designed yeah, just yeah. for recycling. We, we, have, yeah. 
well, we have these bags. Uh, now, somebody uh, wrote, wrote to the council today and said uh, right, that they just got a new domestic appliance and the box was very big and way, way, way bigger than, you know, even if they cut it up, it still wouldn't, the, the amount of card wouldn't have fitted in the blue bag. Right, right. So could they just leave out the box itself with the rest of the card in it? And the council's response was, no, our, opera, our uh, refuse collectors are not allowed to pick up the cardboard box on its own due to health and safety. I have no clue. No. I'll leave you to ponder that one. <laughs> if you cut it up and put it in a blue uh, canvas bag, they'll take it. But if you leave it intact and whole on the curbside, they won't take it due to health and safety. Well, yeah, you ponder that one for a minute. No, I can't. No. The, the, the ludicrousness of modern um, life. So, anyways, I guess the spirit trumpet was popularized in the 19th century by Jonathan Coons. You ever hear of him? Uh, it was popularized by several mediums. It, um, it was used by several uh, mediums. Oh, I, don't know who, I, I, Coons, I don't know who claims to be the first. Uh, he, he had a cabin in uh, Athens County, Ohio and was a fanatical about his spiritualist things and did free public seances. So, yeah, I try to get back with how they attributed it to him, but I don't see anything well, I was on say, how, I mean, does he claim to be the first, or does the article claim he's the first? Or? Yes, it does, actually. Hmm. Oh, I wasn't aware of that, because, um, I mean, I am aware of it being quite a popular device, uh, right. used in many seances, but to be honest with you, I'd never really considered who was the first, and frankly, I was never really that bothered who was the first. And like a lot of things, I'm guessing that there's probably, these sort of things tend to develop, not spontaneously, but they tend to start to develop in several different places around the same time like with electronic voice phenomena uh, in its modern guise with the Frank's boxes and things because although Sumption is always uh, credited with being the first in, in reality uh, he, there were others also experimenting um, along the same lines as him mm. yeah it's he interesting just, I, he just got no. it out there it's like with Bell isn't it yeah pretty much what about uh, you ever hear of a, a a, this is a, I'm trying to read out, uh, the psychic researcher William Jackson Crawford. Uh, you know I know about him. W.J. Crawford. Oh, yeah. Working with the Golden you know Circle. Uh, well, he was a member of the SPR, and in fact, I've written about uh, W.J. Crawford. He was an engineer who worked in Belfast. Right. Um, and he, he worked, um, uh, one of his interests was a uh, physical development uh, group that involved a family called the Golliga uh, family, who uh, they were quite a normal working class family, and they had their own little family seance group. And uh, they worked with Crawford almost exclusively for for quite some period of time. And I guess ultimately, he, he wrote a book about... Uh, yeah, experiments in physical science, uh, levitation, contact, and direct voice. That's the one. And uh, he did a very, very... Uh, I've got the book here. And he, he wrote a very good account of his 
experiments that he did with the Golliger family. I mean, the main medium, although all the family did claim to be mediumistic, it was primarily the, the daughter, Catherine, who was uh, the most psychic, or the one at which uh, the, the focus of the majority of the activity or the manifestations took place. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, uh, in addition to the physical phenomena as well, there were also uh, sound phenomena, which I believe Crawford, in fact Crawford did record, um, and the recordings are still somewhere out there. Um, however, um, a, a year or so after Crawford, uh, another uh, investigator uh, visited the family and declared that what they were doing was nothing more than conjuring tricks. Now, Crawford disagreed with that with that second opinion, but unfortunately, the family then withdrew uh, from any future participation uh, and experiments, and so nothing ever, uh, nothing further was ever done with the family. The house, in fact, a, friend, a member of Parasites, a friend of mine, went to visit the house, um, a little tourist house in Belfast, uh, a few years ago to take some photographs of it for me. Um, oh, wow. Because of an, an article I was doing on Crawford and and uh, his work with the Gulliger Circle. So, so y- you have studied him evidently, and uh, not not in any huge depth, but yeah, well, you've I mean, written an article about him, so I you have, must, I must be aware yeah. of certain things I've, about him. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's been quite some years, so my my memory is you know imperfect, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did, uh, out, out of interest, um, do some research on Crawford, because he was one of the... Uh, was he a legitimate researcher? He was, and he was also a, a fully qualified and highly skilled engineer, uh, which, made a lot, and it, it, which made his measurements more valid, because he was able to conduct measurements in a meaningful and uh, proper fashion. He didn't just randomly go in there and just... Uh, mess about with, you know, on the spot experiments. Uh, he, you know, he he devised proper experimentation to try and test the phenomena that he was uh, witnessing during the Golliger uh, seances, and he remained convinced uh, before, uh, sorry, afterwards. Um, that the the, exper- the experiences and the, the events that he was witnessing were absolutely real. So he did. He was he was he believed in it then. Yes, uh, he didn't. He didn't at first. I mean, he was objective, uh, but he became convinced by what he had um, seen, but also by the fact that the. Uh, Mediums, the family had withstood his um, his testing and the experiments that he he carried out with with them um, and with their consent. So I mean, we have we have you, you know we we look at you know Thomas Gwendolyn Hamilton, which I've always been fascinated because I get got to meet his granddaughter and everything else. I saw the original, actually had in my hands the original photographs that he took. Um, he was a serious researcher, but when you look at these photographs that, and of course, they're all over the internet now. I mean, to you, does that seem, is it, they look, you know, absolutely phony. 
as far as not right. only being, uh, I mean, how, how do you associate your name with something like that? Or is, was he duped by this? That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is, I, I, I don't believe that Crawford was duped. Um, okay. ha- the Hamilton photographs, I, uh, I can't remember. Uh, I can't They're terrible. Guys coming out of the, the mouths. Uh, but, the... you know, we have, we have a parallel with William Crooks and Florence uh, Cook, the medium. Um, and, uh, I mean, even the work, you know, even the photographs of, of Conan Doyle, uh, to our eyes, they look childish and amateurish. But we've got to remember that a hundred, a hundred or so years ago, photography was an unfamiliar and new uh, device, and people weren't familiar with what photographs necessarily looked like. Um, and so it would be, you know, if you weren't familiar with something, then it would be easier to be duped potentially. And the modern analogy for that, of course, would be, for example, the thermal imaging camera, because mm-hmm. it produces what appears to be a photograph, and yet you and I both know that they're not actually photographs in the conventional sense. But when, but when untrained investigators look at these images, they treat them as photographs. And so what, uh, what you and I recognize as being a normal anomaly, they are being duped into thinking that it's paranormal. And so, with, with inexperience... Are they being duped, or is, or is, or is it just... Their rise of themselves. Their rise of yeah. I mean, we. Look, I mean, I look. I, I compare this in my my mind right now of like you know, uh, you know, the tribes in Africa or Aborigines where you know we had uh, Europeans go in with with modern devices and they were you know thought it was magic or this because they had never seen anything like that. They weren't duped. They were. I mean, they were. They honestly believed it was magic because that was their their intelligence that they they only had so much knowledge at that point uh these research is very similar to them only in a you know a little bit different degree um well i think with this with the case of uh, some of the early uh, photographs uh unfamiliarity the unfamiliarity of the situation of the images that they were seeing might lead them uh to believe that, or, or to suspend the belief, or to be, to consider that what they're seeing is um, paranormal. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I have got a hundred years more experience, uh, not personally, but uh, of photography and an understanding of how these images could be and were created. But you've got to remember that even you know intelligent people like Arthur Conan Doyle were ready to believe that the images that were manifesting on photographic plates, seemingly without any uh, human intervention, must therefore be paranormal. You know, they didn't realize, uh, because they weren't skilled photographers, and that the the whole idea of photography was still quite new. Mm -hmm. Um, So they didn't understand all of the mechanisms and how they could be interfered with by modeler or... or, um, Hope. Hope. Uh, Anyways, we're being interfered by the break right now, so we're going to have to take a break. Okay. So anyways, uh, we do have a Teller of Curious Tales come up, which is quite long, and we'll probably 
come back shortly after the break. We'll have it because it's a long one. Anyways, you listen to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Foss and Ron Kolick right here on Tojanet and Pararex Radio, brought to you by Circles of Wisdom and the Galant Messier Family Law Group. We'll be right back. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. Mysterious and spooky, they all talk ugly gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parax family. the general conclusion from the results of my experimental work and from observations of the circle extending over two and a half years that all the phenomena produced are caused by flexible rod-like projections from the body of the medium that these rods are the prime cause of the phenomena whether they consist of levitations movement of the table about the floor wrappings touchings or other variations the words of wj crawford writing in the reality of psychic phenomena after his two and a half year study of the Golica Circle. Good afternoon, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International Part 2 with New England's own Van Helsing and the Gold Standard in Houston. So what was the... I, I quite didn't well, put get it back now. <laughs> it was... I, I, what was, it, was the gist of it? Uh, oh. Basically, what he said is that he believed that uh, rod-like projections were emanating from the body of the... Um... Let me read it again. I have, come to <laughs> the... Sorry. I have come to the general conclusion from the results of my experimental work and from observation of the circle extending over two and a half years that all the phenomena produced are caused by flexible rod-like projections from the body of the medium that these rods are the prime cause of the phenomena, whether they consist of levitations, movements of the table about the floor, wrappings, touchings, or other variations. And uh, that's uh, the last so chapter of general conclusions. Yes, he absolutely did. And 
the, the remainder of the book, the, the other 100 and 220 odd pages. I thought it said it, all this stuff is coming from the medium, projections of possible yeah. lives. Yeah, uh, but it, uh, that, that's the conclusion after 220 pages of highly detailed uh, measurements and scientific uh, apparatus being employed. There's plans and drawings of all of the equipment he was using. Uh, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a phonograph recordings. Uh, I mean, there are, uh, literally, there are, well, as I said, 200 pages of quite detailed scientific um, uh, experiments, complete with, you know, like, like all good engineers, he doesn't just describe the experiments, he lists the equipment, he describes the equipment, he describes how it was done. Um, he describes how it was operated, he describes the results that were obtained, and then he, he reaches a conclusion which I, um, which I outlined. Yeah, the, um, if, if anybody's more interested, that book is available online. You can, for, uh, you can download or you can watch it and read it online. It's called The Reality of Psychic Phenomena by W.J. Crawford. Right. And it was so, published in Belfast in September 1960. I remember that. Yeah, you were there. Mm, probably. Just after the Titanic. Um, so. Yeah, I get out of there quick. After I might. Yeah, well, whatever. Moving right along, uh, we we are going to be having the teller curious tales, but uh, very shortly, if I can get confirmation on that. But anyways, um, let me show it. in ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, we want to. Do we want to go with it now, or should we? Yeah. Let's get it. Let's do it. All right, so... I haven't heard it yet, so I'm excited. Really? Well, for 10 minutes, we'll be uh, sleeping here. Anyway, so Roy, when you have a, a, te a chance, you can uh, let her rip. Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever. Listen to the terror of Hugh's tale. In 1906, there was a hotel on the Rue L'Amour in Paris called Hotel de Amsterdam. It was most frequented by dealers in precious gems. Its landlord was Meneer van der Vans, a Dutchman and a former diamond cutter. Business was good and the hotel was prosperous. One evening, a South African named Colby registered him. It was known that he carried a number of uncut diamonds in his pockets, but so did most of the guests, and no one paid any attention to it. On his first Friday at the hotel, he retired early in the evening. 
and as usual on Saturday morning, a waiter brought coffee and rolls for room 14. He knocked on the door. There was no answer. Another knock, harder this time. Still no answer. Vaguely alarmed and sensing disaster, he went to the landlord and told him he was unable to awaken the young man in room 14. The landlord ran upstairs and looked through the keyhole, but could see nothing, as the key was in the lock. With a piece of wire, he worked it out, and inserting a master key, opened the door and entered room 14. The South African was dead. He was hanging from a huge ancient iron hook which was cemented into the wall. Around his neck was the cord used to loop back the heavy window curtain. The dead man's face was blue and swollen, his eyes wide open. His face was a mask of nameless horror, and his legs were doubled up to keep them from touching the floor. Since all the windows and doors were fastened from the inside, it could have been nothing but suicide, and was so listed on the death certificate. Two weeks passed. The South African suicide was practically forgotten when room 14 had its second tragedy. This time, a Frenchman. He was found hanging from the same hook, a piece of the same cord around his neck, the same doubled up legs, the same expression of nameless horror. Again, the verdict was suicide, the doctor remarking on the strange power of suggestion. That day, all the guests left the hotel. The proprietor was in despair, offering a hundred francs to anyone who would spend the night in the room. A sergeant of police, an ex-soldier who had served in Africa, accepted the offer. On Thursday night, he slept in room 14. He slept soundly, and next morning reported that he had no way being disturbed. But someone remembered that both deaths occurred on Friday night, so the sergeant was asked to stay in room 14 that night. He agreed, and accepted another hundred francs, and laughed when anyone tried to dissuade him. Friday night passed, and Saturday morning came. The waiters knocked on the door of room 14, once more remained unanswered. After the door was broken in, there went the sergeant, hanging from the ancient hook, the curtain rope around his neck, an expression of horror on his face. No violence, no violent play. The newspapers took it up, and headlines screamed of a murderous ghost, a haunted room in the heart of they offered a considerable reward to anyone who would stay in the room. Ricardo Garibaldi moved in. For four days he never left room 14. Twice during the day and once each evening, Garibaldi was called on the telephone, and each time he answered that he had seen and heard nothing. This continued until Friday. Twice that evening, 
Nancy the phone. But on Saturday morning, Garibaldi was dead. And he died exactly as all the others had. But this time, the police refused the doctor's verdict of suicide. They insisted it was me and set out to prove it, for they had a tiny piece of paper on which was written, something's happened. The war is... Assassins! Two detectives, unknown to that part of Paris, came to the Hotel d'Amsterdam. One registered to room 14, the other was given accommodation on the floor below. It was Friday night. One detective was hiding under the bed, the other sat up reading. Everything was quiet. Suddenly the silence was broken by the citizen. A noise like that of escaping gas. But both men were prepared for this, as they expected a stupefying gas of some kind. They stuffed their noses with tiny cones of coffee which had been treated to neutralize gas. The man in the chair feigned drowsiness and then deep sleep. The lights went out. Slowly, a part of the wall began moving forward, and a figure stood in the recess. A squat, deformed Chinese, with long, thin arms and fingers that moved like the legs of an imprisoned insect. He advanced towards the detective, who was falling asleep. Silent, the detective under the bed rolled out and stood up. For the first time, the silence was broken when he snapped out the following Stand still! Up with your hands! After that, Pandemonium broke loose. Fighting, struggling, tables and chairs thrown and overturned. Two shots rang out. Whistles shrilled in the street. The sound of running men trampling feet. And quiet again. When the detectives turned on their flashlights, they found two Chinese and a white man on the floor. Both Chinese were unconscious. The white man was still. By the time the two detectives had handcuffed the latter, six other men were driven through the secret wall opened by the police. After these men were safely under lock and key, a careful search of the premises was made. An underground passage leading to room 14 from the house next door was found, and through this passage the murderer had come to rob and kill. Stealing silently into the room, he strangled his victims, whose legs were then doubled up, and after rigor mortis had set in, a rope was put around his neck, and he was hung on the ancient hook. So was solved the mystery of the suicide room. The dawn strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep time. <laughs>
That was a good one. That's all I like. Uh, well, we don't write the scripts. <laughs> uh, those scripts are provided for us by... History. Oh, did you ever solve that problem? No, no. But, you said you but were that, hot on the trail. We were. Um, and it still looks very likely that... I can't remember the guy's name now. Um, help me out. That's me. Well, the Twilight Zone. Uh, Rod Sherling. Yeah, that it's either it was one of his, uh, him or one of his compadres. Um, very, very similar to other works from um, from his hand, um, all were circulating around that period um, because he started off in uh, radio prior to uh, his move over to uh, the Twilight Zone. So, um, yeah. But as I say, we don't write the script, so we can't control the length. Hmm. Interesting. I noticed that uh, very, the television tale has uh, got himself a sound effects cassette. Ah. And, and an echo chamber by the sound of it, unless he was recording that one in the bathroom. Yeah. That's, uh, that tale was very, uh, very much like a Sherlock Holmes theme. Well, there were a mixture of them. I mean, the Tell of Curious Tales, and there are there are two hundred and something separate stories, um, and they're not all paranormal. Though, you know, you've got a, a they are as I say curious tales. Some of them are ghostly. Some of them are about monsters. Some of them are just myster- mysteries, and uh, uh, that's one of the uh, mystery ones. That's uh, pretty decent. I liked it. And I thought it was a good one. I think so too. I have a uh, question, and, and once again, it was something I was pondering: is how can we to get out there? Yeah, well, after everything's over, and I've probably had a time to relax, you sit down and have a ponder. Have a ponder. I was curious: uh, yeah. do we really hear too much about? Uh, ghosts of mediums? Uh, in that, in what regard? Mediums coming back as ghosts? Yes, yes. It's not the most common thing that they do. But do you mediums, know of any? I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not uh, familiar with any. Not off the top of my head, no. I mean, I know plenty of mediums that have come back, um, or not come back, but have communicated with the living after they've well, died. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about ghosts. Okay. If anybody okay. could become oh, a... Apparition. It was supposedly these people that were like all attuned to it. To me, uh, actually, maybe maybe the weakness is what in what you just said because um, because they can communicate. Uh, isn't one of the things that mediums often say about the ghosts are that they have unfinished business or that they can't move on because they they need assistance to move on often by a medium saying. Go, go, go to that light bulb up on the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to the well, of course, that being the case, then the mediums would, of course, know to go to the light bulb um, and would know how to cross over. Therefore, they wouldn't be ghosts. But there isn't a medium that I don't know that isn't seeking some type of validation somewhere. That's why they're all. They always use scientific methods and some of this and that. And We've done this, haven't we? With every meeting that we we used to have on the show, uh, I always used to say to them, "Why are you looking for ghosts when you intrinsically know 
um, that you know that we survive. Um, you know, why are you looking for something that you already know is there? And the answer is always been, haven't it? Uh, well, we know, but it's our mission to prove it to other people. And anyway, I'm sceptical. And I don't always, I like to rule out all of the scientific possibilities yeah. before I accept that what I'm seeing is spirit. So it's like. It's a piece of equipment to prove that they Well, or as I often think to myself, well, yeah, but you're being paid for it. But they always look for validation, and, and every every medium I ever known is always looking for validation. So wouldn't that be the ultimate validation? It's like here I am. Uh, well, one might imagine so. I would uh, think so. Yet we we hear very little about it. I mean, I was doing search well, trying to find the ghosts of a well, dead I, I medium. I haven't been able to. Well, I can't recall any off the top of the head. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that there hasn't been the old. No, I'm not. No, I, I spent hours doing it, but uh, I, uh, I, I'm not aware of it. No, me neither. And it's either because the whole thing is flimflam, or because, well, I mean, you know, these these people, you know, maybe they can't come back, or maybe, you know, the the. I mean, the, they're only people like you and I. Um, you know, they say to us that they have these powers and they believe that they have these powers. I, um, I believe a lot of them really absolutely believe that they have this. Oh, I don't, I don't doubt that they believe that they have these powers. But whether those powers and I'm not are, saying they don't have these powers either. Well, nor am I. But I'm just saying that uh, there is the possibility that they believe that they have the powers the same as you know, people believe other things. Uh, there was a there was a notable Frenchman who believed he could fly by flapping his arms. Didn't work. Didn't work. Oh, so uh, he fell to his death. Um, but yeah, it, sort of like uh, the, the old Greeks. I wake up this. Yeah, the old fable. He yeah. just went. Well, he just went too high. I mean, he was perfectly capable of flapping his arms and flying. Uh, we, need, we need more fables now. Modern fables. Well, you see, you can tell that that fable wasn't written by a physicist because a physicist knows that for every 30 meters you ascend, uh, your temperature drop, the air temperature drops by one degree Celsius. Mm -hmm. So the closer the Icarus flew to the sun, in actual fact, the harder the wax on the wings would have become. Yes, but then again, we think about this as, as we talked about earlier in the show, that at the time, that was the thinking of the time. So oh, once yeah. again... The, what they thought that was the facts of the time that this is if you got close to the sun it would wax but well, based, wax based was, on the science wax. they knew right they well, knew if that if you put wax near a flame it, it would melt if you put wax out in the sun it was there long enough it would melt so if you go nearer to the sun and in fact in, if you do go nearer to the sun you do in fact get warmer um, but you have to. But that—that's uh, using radiant heat, not. Um, whereas the atmosphere doesn't work like that. It acts as a as a as a shield. Yeah, as a filter to radiant heat. So you'd have to go out of the atmosphere before that thermodynamic effect kicks in. Uh, so unless Icarus flew very very high out of the atmosphere without suffocating or blowing apart uh, by the pressure differential. <laughs> um, then he would, as soon as he was out of the atmosphere, of course, in direct sunlight, as uh, the spacecraft and satellites all exhibit, you know, the temperature accelerates rapidly yeah, up to 
but more than 100 back degrees. Back at that time, the uh, Earth, re- I mean, the Sun revolved around the Earth. We all know that. Uh, well, Earth, was, Earth was the well, center of the universe at that time. Uh, well, it wasn't. I mean, the Greek. This is a myth. The Greeks, the Greeks knew well enough that the Earth was a globe and that it went round the Sun. Not according to the flat Earthers. I don't care what the flat earthers say. The Greeks, the Greeks, the Greek uh, astronomers and mathematicians knew full well that uh, the Earth was a ball and that we went round the sun, not the other way round. It was, um, it wasn't. It, it, the information was never lost, but the Catholic Church didn't like the idea, um, and so they had a good, good old go at Galileo uh, for daring to suggest that uh, the Earth was in fact not the centre of the known universe, when in fact it had been well known for several hundreds of years, right. a millennia or more, that, um, and had been demonstrated um, by uh, the Greeks um, that this was absolutely the case, but the Catholic Church didn't like the idea very much. Mm-hmm. Now I want. I know we're running down at the end of the show, and uh, I want. Sh- I would wonder if you had saw this. Uh, where they now uh, believe that the um, the Earth uh, at the time of the dinosaurs was actually halfway across the galaxy from uh, the galaxy spins, and it, where it was it was half a revolution from where it is now. Um, I was aware that we're not where we were then. Um, we went there quite a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, but then you've also got to consider that, I mean, 60, were you talking about 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs disappeared? Mm-hmm. Um, the night sky looked very different to us because a lot of the constellations that we're used to seeing, and in fact, have only been visible for the last 10, 12,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, 30,000 years. Just weren't there then. So uh, the, the plough the North Star, um, Orion, all of these great uh, constellations wouldn't have been there because we were in a completely different uh, part of the universe facing in a slightly different direction. Well, we were. We were in the same place. It's just that the universe is constantly rotating. We're out on one of these spinny arms. No, we, it orbs, yeah, it, it yeah. rotates as, as well. I mean, the, the galaxies yeah. rotate. They go round together. Right. Kind of. But it does it so, does it yeah. does materially change, and in fact, uh, archaeoastronomers have used that uh, to look back at how uh, stone alignments would have looked ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand years ago to our Which ancestors. Makes sense. Right. Yeah. And you know they they've got mathematical programs that can run back the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do. I mean, they, they haven't they haven't moved very much in thirty thousand years uh, as to how they are today. But over 65 million years or 100 million years, they would have significantly varied in their uh, place. But the Earth, the Earth was still in the same relative place inside the galaxy. Right. I was uh, when when Ron was a young lad, uh, I had bought him a, a nice telescope, and along with it came a nice uh, program on floppy disks. Remember floppy disks? And mm-hmm. You could actually see the stars at any point in history, what they, where they would be, and, and, and with this program, it was pretty interesting, especially for that period of time. I bought one of them to use on my old 386 computer, and you could be able to track back the stars. Yes, you could yes. Stand at Stonehenge and wind yes. back. Yeah, Absolutely. look at the stars. 
It was cool. But you can, I mean, you can do that now on Google Earth, weirdly. I know, but, uh, you, you know, that was fascinating like you, at that time, though. Well, I mean, do you remember the other thing that you, uh, the must-have computer uh, floppy disk box set mm. for Microsoft Encarta? Oh, yes. The dictionary. The, Encyclopedia. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it came on, like, 25 discs. Yes. Yes. And then eventually it came on just 10 CD-ROMs, and then eventually it just disappeared altogether. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this thing called Internet, which totally wiped yeah. everything and, off. You know, then you could find them at thrift stores and uh, yard sales. Hmm. Anyways. It cost, cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars to buy those uh, Encarta sets. Are you serious? Yeah. Deadly serious. Encarta wow. would cost... Um, and, and there were others, but in Carter would cost over two hundred pounds in the UK when it first came out. I have, I have in my drawer here. I have a kit that was given to me by the uh, government uh, because I was a business at that time, and this was because of the great uh, Y two K scare. Y two Y two K scare. And gave us a survival kit, how to survive Y2K. So that was pretty interesting. But anyways, we have run out of time, so we do have to go. You have been listening Actually, to... I was about to tell you about my uh, one experience with the Y2K virus. Ooh. Uh, we only have 15 seconds. Well, this was a genuine computer virus. And every time you typed the letter Y on your computer, it altered it to a K. Hmm. It was a genuine virus as well. It was called the Y2K virus. Excellent. Anyways, we do have to go. You've been listening to Ghost Chronicles International. Steve Boss and Ron Kolick right here on Tojanet and Parrax Radio. Brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street in the Bruin, Massachusetts. And, of course, the Gallant Messier Family Law Group, 4 High Street, Suite. 153 in North Andover, Massachusetts. So, till next time, good night and God bless. Right. Ghoulies to ghosties, long leggedy beasties, and things that go bumping in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.